0: Well, good evening. It's good to see everybody here. Why don't you take your Bible, (coughs) excuse me, and open to Romans uh, chapter (coughs) 6. My voice is a little not on the good side, and it's a little part, even though it's been weeks ago, it's part of the, because I was under so long for my surgery and they had that tube in my throat, and uh, it's gotten better every week, but obviously preaching kind of strains it, so um, I'll try to do my best here we're in Romans chapter 6, we're in verse 12, and before we uh, read this uh, 12, 13, and 14, I, I just want to say, um, I, I know on Sunday nights, sometimes it's hard, the flesh is weak, and, and we're tired, okay, and, and I come loaded for bear always, okay, I'm trying to set a feast before you, some people have, uh, Uh, describe my teaching as like dumping out from a fire hose, Um, and and I'm not trying to overwhelm you, but I'm trying to make sure you get your money's worth, okay? And I've told you this before, one of the greatest compliments I've ever heard in this church was by an older man who told me, I understand you by Thursday. (laughs) And, And to me, that's a tremendous compliment, because what that tells me was that he realized he couldn't take it all in at once, and so little by little, he listened to it over and over again. And we do record these. These things are by uh, CD in the back or online. You can go back through them. Okay. And I preface that not to say that what we're going to do tonight is great because of what I'm saying. What what we're going to say tonight is great because of what God is saying. Romans chapter 6 is one of the greatest chapters in the entire Bible. And we all need to know it. We need to understand it. And then live accordingly. It it is the great emancipation emancipation proclamation for the Christian. And when you stop and really start seeing what God has laid out for this chapter, or for us in this chapter, your hearts will be just encouraged. So if it takes you one time or two times or three times or a bunch of times, listen to it over again or just take a little bit in at a time Then do that because you'll be so blessed by God's Word. All right? This is rich, rich stuff. So in Romans chapter 6, verse 12, and again, uh, verse 12 through verse 14, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Now again, here in the sixth chapter, as we're looking our attention to tonight, it is again just a tremendously encouraging, important portion of Scripture. And it talks about the doctrine of sanctification. And we talked about this previously, that uh, justification is the uh, legal pronouncement from the Supreme Judge of the universe affecting our status before him as he declares us absolutely not guilty and positively righteous in Christ. Now, sanctification, on the other hand, is the actual miracle of of that declaration. And sanctification affects our life in time because of our union with Christ. Because once we're saved... Once we are in Christ, our life is joined with him and who we used to be apart from Christ and our relationship to sin has now once and forever been transformed and changed. So sanctification is the process of separation from sin and separation unto holiness and righteousness. So justification begins the process and it's instantaneous and sanctification results from that declaration, from that reality. The the two are inseparable. Uh, Justification breaks our relationship with Adam and brings us into full union with Christ. Adam, I told you, Adam brought us sin and death and judgment and condemnation, but Christ brings to us new life, pardon. Uh, Again, the gift of righteousness. So again, in Christ, forgiven, justified, we are no longer who we once were. So again, in chapter 6 here, Paul is arguing... That in spite of the sinner's past, all whom God has justified will experience personal holiness. Because, again, listen, this is profound. Jesus Christ changes people's lives. Amen? I mean, that seems to be a forgotten truth in modern evangelicalism. Jesus Christ changes people's lives. Listen, here's even more radical. Jesus Christ actually saves his people from their sins. Right? Jesus Christ saves his people from their sins. So in Christ, you and I are no longer who we once were previously. All things now in Christ are different. So again, Romans chapter 6 is just a tremendously encouraging, freeing, liberating section of Scripture. Now, throughout the history of the Church, there have been a lot of unbiblical thinking regarding this issue of sanctification. Uh, Of course, you remember that uh, during the time of the Protestant Reformation, 16th century... Uh, There's a lot of misunderstanding of the doctrine of justification, and the Reformers pulled that back from the era of the Roman Catholic Church, and ultimately came to a proper understanding not only of justification, but a proper understanding of sanctification. But there have been lots of errors with the issue of sanctification along the way. And I gave a little bit of consideration on which direction to go tonight, and this is the the way I thought I would go, uh, that I think it's helpful for us to have a little bit of a historical understanding of this doctrine of sanctification, and how at, how it has been thought of and uh, at least addressed here for the last couple hundred of years, mostly here in the states, but also in the in the UK, because I think it has present ramifications for how we today understand the doctrine uh, of sanctification. So, if you allow me for a few moments, about ten or so, I'm going to put on the hat of the uh, of the historian, the history teacher, and I'm going to show you how historically how an improper understanding of the doctrine of sanctification. Affects our life today or influences our life today, and once we're done with that, we'll go back to Romans six and then we'll see what God has to say on the issue, right? Versus what some theologians even today are teaching on this issue. So it starts like this: in the 18th century, there was a man named John Wesley. I'm sure you're familiar with him. Wesley was was an English and trained at Oxford, and Wesley had a quote-unquote religious conversion when he was 22 years of age. Whereupon, he initiated a methodical study of the Bible called the Holy Club. Later, it became known as Methodism, partly because of its strict method of studying the Bible. Therefore, Wesley ultimately became the founder of the Methodist denomination. It was sometime later, after teaching of a man named Peter Bowler, that Wesley understood that salvation was by grace alone through faith alone in Christ. So once Wesley understood that, then he was truly converted and began preaching the message of salvation by faith alone. Now, that was an unusual message in the Church of England at the time because the church had a great emphasis on sacraments, not doctrine. Wesley was direct was a distinctively Arminian in his theology, which, among other things, believes that God elects to save those whom he knew would, of their own free will, believe in Christ and persevere in faith. So Wesley taught that a man has the ability to cooperate with God in his salvation through the, quote-unquote, free gift of prevenient grace. And maybe you've heard that terminology before. Or prevenient grace, as Wesley saw it, grace that goes before and prepares the heart of man by the Holy Spirit to enable that man to respond to the gospel and cooperate with God in salvation. Wesley also saw the atonement as universal, making all of mankind savable. Wesley called men to repent and believe, but Wesley's understanding of repentance was a change of heart from all sin, listen, to all holiness. Wesley believed that salvation might be lost by the actions of men Therefore, salvation was never certain; is always tied to the actions of men. So, Wesley's understanding of the doctrine of sanctification influenced Mm -hmm. a whole host of theological movements, especially the 19th century. But the efforts, uh, the effects of Wesley in theology of sanctification, is widespread uh, in uh, even in our day. So says the author that I'm referencing. So Wesley, who came to understand and teach that sanctification. Wesley came to understand and teach that sanctification was a, this is his terminology, a second transforming work of grace distinguished uh, distinct from conversion. Wesley's understanding of sanctification became known as Christian perfectionism, <clears throat> entire sanctification, or full salvation. Later, it became known as the second blessing. According to Wesley, Matthew, Matthew 5.48 commands perfection. Matthew 5.48 says, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. So he therefore believed that perfection was attainable in this lifetime. Wesley believed that a Christian could be perfect in this world and not commit sin. He did not object to describing the sanctified Christian as quote-unquote sinless. For Wesley, perfectionism was relative because he saw it was freedom from willful and known sin and refused to call anything sin except a voluntary transgression of known law. Therefore, the perfect Christian was still subject to mistakes and involuntary transgressions. But nevertheless, they were sanctified and sinless in the eyes of Wesley's understanding. Wesley believed that the work of entire sanctification happened uh, instantly by a simple act of faith, a simple act of faith that was seen as some crisis moment in a person's life separate from justification. In the words of Wesley, when a simple act of faith, a Christian... Uh, With a simple act of faith, a Christian negatively eliminates all sinful desires from the heart. Example, pride, envy, jealousy, anger, lust. He destroys inbred moral depravity. And positively, entire sanctification affects complete purity of intentions, tempers, actions, stimulants, perfect love for God, and stimulates a perfect love for God and neighbor, and restores the moral, the image of God in the soul. So says Wesley. So that's Wesley, and after Wesley came another man named John Fletcher. Wesley came and very strongly uh, defended uh, Wesley's doctrine of perfectionism, but he commonly spoke of it as the experience of the baptism or the filling of the Holy Spirit. Wesleyan perfectionism was promoted heavily by the founder of the Methodist Church in America, Francis Asbury. But perfectionist doctrine found its way into other groups outside of Methodist churches, uh, especially Charles Finney and Asa Mahan of Oberlin College, which is here in Ohio. Both of these men taught the doctrine of perfectionism by baptism of the Holy Spirit, which empowered and perfected the will of the believer to act in conformity to the will of God. They held that this entire sanctification was obtainable and instantaneous as an act by faith. Mahan taught that there was thus two kinds of Christians, a lower kind of Christian who had received justification, the carnal Christian, and a higher kind of Christian who received sanctification, the spiritual Christian. And these men were influenced by Methodist teaching, but as they further added to it, their teaching affected Methodism. In the early part of the 19th century, perfectionistic teachings among Methodists began to wane, but through a lay couple, Phoebe and Walter Palmer, the movement began to grow again, and it was known as the Holiness Movement. Phoebe Palmer received quote-unquote entire sanctification, she says, when she was 30 years old. She and her husband began an itinerant traveling ministry throughout the United States, Canada, and the British Isles. Phoebe Palmer popularized uh, popularized again the teaching of Wesleyan entire sanctification and emphasized that entire sanctification was an endowment of divine power for service whereby she linked holiness with power. Her uh, Her efforts came to be known what is called the higher life movement which is nothing more than part of the holiness movement where these individuals in this higher life movement were mostly outside of the west uh, the methodist circles a man named william boardman in the uh, uh, born 1810 died 1886 who was a presbyterian minister he succeeded in opening the door to perfectionism uh, in non-methodist churches in the presbyterian movement he wrote a book called the higher christian life in 1858 and he was strongly influenced by Finney, Mahan, and Palmer. Boardman believed in full sanctification that separated into two distinct parts, justification and sanctification, which are received by two distinct acts of faith. This second work of grace is again in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Higher life teachers moved away from the Wesleyan view of sin eradicated from the believer's life in the second blessing and preferred to speak to the believer's dominion or victory over sin that resulted in deliverance from all-known conscious sinning. A man named Robert Pearsall Smith and his wife Hannah Whitehall Smith, uh, again in the mid-1800s, were both Quakers from Quaker homes, and Robert spent most of his days in the early Presbyterian Church, or most of his early days in the Presbyterian Church. They both claimed they received the baptism of the Holy Spirit in 1867, and Mrs. Smith wrote a book, which I bet you have heard of, called The Christian's Secret to the Happy Life. You ever heard that, Hannah Whitehall uh, Smith? It's a popular book. You still find it everywhere in our day. She wrote it in uh, 1867. The Smiths went to a series of meetings in England with Boardman and Mahan, and through their influence, they were instrumental in spreading the holiness movement into Europe. It was with Smiths, especially the Smiths, especially Mrs. Smith, whose teaching filled with Quaker concepts, she brought quietism. She brought an extreme passivity in the second blessing, and she was the first one to introduce this idea of letting go, letting go and letting go. Mrs. Smith described her higher Christian life as this, quote, an entire surrender to the Lord and a perfect trust in him resulting in victory over sin and inward rest of the soul, end quote. In this state, the believer is free from any conscious transgression of God's law, and certainly, she says, that's a happy life. Right, So if you declare yourself absolutely perfect, you're living a happy life. H- Anna Waddle-Smith, right? The Smiths, Boardman, and Mahan had a series of meetings with D.L. Moody in 1873 designed to promote holiness. A year later, another conference was held at Oxford. A year after that, even a larger meeting was held in Brighton, which Moody threw his support behind. One of the converts to the victorious Christian life at these meetings was the Reverend T.D. Hartford Battersley Battersby, who was the vicar of St. John's Keswick, a parish in North England. He started an organ and started an organizing event called the annual Keswick conferences. Has anybody heard of those before? Those are pretty popular. right? A- annual Keswick conferences, and they've been held ever since. Now, history records Robert Pearsall Smith, who, according to he and his wife, both received the baptism of the Holy Spirit in 1860, 1867. Both of uh, uh, Robert Pearsall Smith was supposed to lead the first Keswick conference. But unfortunately, as just before it was to begin, he was forced out to drop, forced out and to drop out of the conference uh, uh, by an apparent indiscretion with a young woman at his hotel room. And uh, Smith returned to the United States and dropped out of the public life. Let me tell you what this, you know, I mean, if you're trying to promote a holiness movement that you're absolutely perfect and never sin again, it's probably not good for you to have an indiscretion with a young woman in your hostel room right before you're to lead the conference, right? It's probably not going to help your cause. So they drop out of public life. But the Keswick teaching continued, the Keswick ministries, uh, conferences. The Keswick teaching opposed the teaching of total eradication of the sinful nature in this life, but it agreed with the holiness teaching of sanctification coming from a crisis experience separated from justification. Those are the things I want you to listen to. A crisis experience separated from Justification. For those associated with the Keswick movement, there are two types of Christians. The average or the carnal Christian who behaves much like the unbeliever and the quote-unquote normal or the spiritual Christian who is filled with the Holy Spirit. Again, Keswick teaches that this transformation from the carnal to the spiritual Christian takes place not by a long struggle but by a simple act of faith. Again, separate from justification, that's what they teach. So Keswick teaching first spread to America through Moody. Uh, through Moody and his Northfield conferences. In 1910, Charles G. Trumbull, the editor of Sunday School Times, became a convert to Keswick beliefs and he used his, <coughs> excuse me, editorial energies to promote Keswick teaching in America. He and Robert uh, C. McQuilkin, his assistant at the Sunday School Times, founded the Columbia Bible College in 1923 and, and began an American Keswick conference in 1913. Trumbull argued that the secret to the victorious life for the Christian was to make an unconditional absolute surrender to God and faith. He taught that one must not strive for spiritual victory, but rather again, one must simply let go and let gone. Lewis Perry Schaefer, who attended Overland College, uh, his major theological influence came from his association with C.I. Schofield, whom he met in 1901. Schofield was, uh, he met Schofield while Schofield was teaching at the Moody's Northfield Training School. And according to scholars, Schaefer's perspective on sanctification was shaped by various uh, victorious life teachers that he heard there. Schaefer, with the help of W. H. Griffith Thomas, started the Evangelical Theological College in 1924, which later became known as Dallas Theological Seminary, whose teachings are distinctively Keswick, says the author. Keswick theology has continued to teach the, that the second blessing results in the believer living a life of uniform, sustained victory over known sin. And what makes Dallas's theology different with or significant with Keswick's and all second blessing theologies, again, going all the way back to Wesley himself, is a distinction between justification and sanctification as separate works of grace. Second blessing advocates have universally argued for the need of a crisis act. Listen, a crisis act of dedication or consecration essential for the progressive sanctification. Charles Ryrie, who taught at uh, Dallas Theological Seminary for many years, says this in his book called Balancing the Christian Life. He says, and I quote, There is perhaps no more important matter in relationship to the spiritual life than dedication. End quote. Again, another quote. Dedication concerns the subject of my life to Jesus as long as I live. Salvation involves the sin question. Dedication, subjection. But too often he says various victorious, uh, uh, very often victorious life speakers make dedication a condition for salvation, and this is nothing less than adding works to the gospel uh, of uh, grace. Another quote: Before any lasting progress can be made on the road of spiritual living, the believer must be a dedicated person. It is this basic foundation of sanctification. Dedication is a complete crisis commitment of self for all the years of one life one's life end quote right so according to this teaching or right, until the believer has not experienced the single one-time act in life of dedication they might be justified but there's no a real spiritual progress there's no sanctification and again the teaching separates justification from sanctification and that teaching that separates justification from sanctification has led to another modern day popular division of christians i've already said it two categories a carnal and spiritual so again the carnal christian has experienced salvation from the guilt and the penalty of sin in other words he's justified but he still needs and i quote a distinct form of salvation from bond servitude to sin according to lewis perry schaefer and until a christian experiences this once for all crisis dedication that moves them to a higher plane of christianity he remains a carnal christian Now that all comes from, it's adapted, sometimes freely quoted, but I've adapted it to some extent from an article from a man named Dr. William Combs at Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary in a paper called False Views of Sanctification. So that's the recent history. Okay, history lesson over. That's the recent history, at least in the United States and a little bit of Europe, as the teaching goes, again, of this idea of sanctification, that there are two kinds of Christians, a spiritual Christian and a carnal Christian. The carnal Christian, although he's saved, looks like the unsaved individual in his thoughts, actions, and life. So here's the question. Is that biblical? Is any of it biblical? Are justification and sanctification two separate acts of grace? And is there such a thing as a carnal Christian as distinct from a quote-unquote spiritual Christian? Where the carnal Christian... One who claims to be saved yet remains in his sin is no different than he was before he supposedly had a salvation experience. And he's simply just awaiting a second blessing of the baptism of the Holy Spirit or a quote-unquote crisis moment of, or crisis point of dedication in order that sanctification may place. Is that biblical teaching? Now, as I was reading that to you, I mean, some of those names and maybe some of those thoughts are probably somewhat familiar because you probably heard some of those terms just in casual conversation with people. Again, the question is, it biblical? And I would contend from the scripture, the, absolute, the answer is absolutely no. Absolutely no, because justification and sanctification are linked together because of the believer's union with Christ. Now, excuse me, just in case there's somebody out there that wants to come and contend with me, prove me contrary. Somebody who pulls out their King James Bible, or their New King James Bible, and opens it to 1 Corinthians 3.1. It says, well, there you go. You don't even know what you're talking about. There's that category of so-called carnal Christian, because that's what it says. The verse in 1 Corinthians 3.1 says, I, brethren, could not speak to you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes into Christ. Now, all the other versions say, uh, use a phrase somewhere along the line of men's, men of flesh or people of flesh. It's sarks is the word. That's what he's talking about. So just in case you want to come argue with me, I'll save you uh, the trip up to the front of the room uh, because Paul's not advocating in that statement for a category called a a, a carnal Christian. What he is saying to them is, I can't talk to you as adults because you're acting in the flesh, you're acting as children, you're immature, you're babes. He is not promoting a carnal Christian kind of a a category and he's saying this is okay for you to be here until something else happens. He's saying there's no reason for you to be here. You need to grow up. You need to stop being this way. So he's not advocating it. So if you're going to argue with that uh, with me out of First Corinthians three one, I just saved you some some time and me too, right? Romans six, and I've had people argue with me till they're blue in the face, and I'm like exhausted. Okay, it's not what it's teaching. Listen, Romans six clearly teaches that justification and sanctification cannot be divided that a believer cannot have one without the other. Romans 6 teaches that there is no new crisis moment needed after conversion, but that the believer has died with Christ, therefore now the believer lives with Christ, because both are integral um, uh, elements of one's salvation. Romans 6 does not lay out the map of how to live a holy life as a justified person. Romans 6 lays out why a justified person must live a holy life. Now, in my notes, I always, when I have something I want to emphasize, I either underline it or I write a little word, key, all right, right? Key point right next to it. All three of those statements, I wrote key points. All three of those statements, I said repeat twice. Okay? I won't do that. But that's an important thing to understand. Romans chapter 6 teaches that justification and sanctification are not divided. You cannot have one without the other. Again, top of the chapter, verse 1, Romans 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so grace may increase? Are we to continue to live like unbelievers living in sin? Paul says it is impossible. And the mere suggestion is monstrous. Verse 2, may it never be, right? I told you that's the strongest form of negation in the Greek. How shall we who die to sin still live in it? He's saying, look, habitual patterns of sin... Habitual patterns of sin do not mark the life of the believer. The Bible says, straightforward declaration, we've died to sin. If we've died to sin, that means means we still can't live in it. Right? You can't live in something that you've died to. Therefore, we who are justified have been delivered from the domain, the dominion, the tyranny of sin. Sin no longer rules over us. We are no longer slaves to sin. Now, when did all this happen? When did this death, we've died to sin, Where did this take place? It took place at conversion, verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, verse 4, we've been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. So those phrases, baptism into Christ, remember I told you he's not talking about literal baptism, it's a dry verse, might baptized into his death or baptized into Christ Jesus. Both of those are a bit of shorthand for conversion. Conversion is a fact of history; it's a past completed act with Christ at the cross. Because of our union with Christ, because of our union with Christ, we're completely now immersed into Christ. We're permanently made now one with Christ, thoroughly, <laughs> completely transformed in Him, by Him, with Him, altered by Him. Again, remember when we talked about that phrase of baptism uh, or baptizing to Christ Jesus. Again, I said it's not a it's not a wet verse; it's a dry verse. He's not talking about literal baptism, but he's trying to use a physical analogy to teach the spiritual truth. What happens when somebody does actually get baptized, right? That person is altered. Again, we saw it a few weeks ago. Those people who got baptized, they went from a a state of dryness to another state, that being the state of wetness. Likewise, listen, when a person comes to faith in Christ, when a person is justified, that person is permanently altered, immersed into Christ, permanently changed, made one with Christ completely transformed through and through they have just been changed from a state of deadness and rebelliousness in uh, adam now dead to sin now brought in christ into the realm of grace and the realm of life brought into a completely new relationship right so we've been baptized into his death buried through baptism into death so that christ so that as christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the father why is that so that we too might walk in newness of life so look, Paul is saying at conversion. It's more than just a legal declaration or forensic transaction taking place. He says conversion is a reality. Once we are justified, there's an actual fundamental transformation, a changed life. We are now new creations, new creatures in Christ. And we are continually, progressively, each and every day looking more and more like Christ. And he's saying, look, not only are we looking more and more like Christ, there's an absolute distinction between the believer and the unbeliever. As a result of our union with Christ, as a result of conversion, our lives used to be marked by sin. And sin, and sin, and sin, and sin, and sin. And and death, and judgment, and condemnation. Disobedience. Now, in Christ, united with Christ... Our lives are marked by obedience, by holiness. Saint Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new what? New creature. Old things are what? Still dragging it behind us like a U-Haul going to a funeral. No. No. Old all things, all things have passed away. Fresh. All things are new. That's freeing. That's encouraging. We used to be evil and only evil in Adam. But in Christ we're changed. Not because of us, but because of him. In Christ we're changed because of his righteousness. Now I didn't say perfect. But the bent of your life, if you genuinely say the bent of your life, must be marked and distinguished by righteousness. An obedient life. Pursuit of righteousness. Conversion, again, means freedom from the dominion of sin. And it is an actual possession of those united in Christ. It is not just a uh, positional or a theoretical discussion. It is inseparably bound to the believer because of our union with Christ and his death, or in his death and in his resurrection. If this was just some kind of theoretical or abstract discussion, then the whole argument has no relevance. But Paul is arguing for holiness based on our union with Christ, and he's arguing for holiness in a very real, experimental, life-lived-on-the-ground, rubber-hitting-the-road kind of a theology. This is truth. So again, this is not a pie in the sky when you die, and hopefully one day I'll get... no. No, this is reality. This is the reality, the practical walk of the justified. Holiness and separation from sin. And again, I've said this before, if there's no transformation of life, if there's no bent towards holiness if your life is not radically marked by a change by righteousness then you have no legitimate claim to salvation because again the question is how shall we who died to sin still live in it that is why my friends if you come to a new members class we not only ask you when you were saved we're grateful to hear that story but the question that i really want answered is i want to know what difference has christ made in your life well, how has Christ changed your life? I was just talking to somebody a couple days ago who, are, who that person is convinced they are a believer. I do not sit in the seat of the universe. I see absolutely zero evidence of a transformed life. So I asked them that question. I said, tell me, since you claim to be saved, tell me how Christ has changed your life. I said, think about it. I don't want an answer right now. I want you to think about it. Because I want you to think and I want you to give me an answer. And again, if there's no bent towards holiness, no bent towards righteousness, no looking more and more, at least a little bit, like Christ, then you have no legitimate claim to salvation. And again, I think that's very hard for some people to understand because we have grown up in a system that says all I have to do is accept Jesus, and I accept Jesus, I'm in. Man, I accepted Jesus when I was two. You know, I I I don't know. I I don't know that at two years old you really have the mental capacity to understand your sin understand what it means to, to be under God's judgment and repent of that sin and and place your faith in the Savior okay so for parents with little kids I always encourage you just keep encouraging them the next step okay wait they don't need to get wet at two or three or four I don't baptize young kids I want to I want to see genuine conversion I want to see some genuine uh, fruit of righteousness when I first moved to Ohio I was around a lot of guys who baptized everybody at three. And they asked me the question, when would you know your kids are saved? I said, well, ask me when they're 37. To which they all were upset with me because they're all baptizing their kids at three. And I'm saying, no, 37. They go, why 37? Well, because at 37, they no longer live with me. They're living their own lives. They have their own families. They're out from underneath my influence. And I can tell whether or not God has really worked in their life. That's what we're looking for. I'm not looking for your conversion experience. I'm looking for how since you had your conversion experience, how Christ has changed your life because nobody who comes in contact with Christ in a salvific way stays the same. It's just that simple. It's just as simple as the justified look different than the unjustified in the world in time. Now we the justified, we battle with sin. I'm not arguing that point. I did not say perfection. We battle with sin all the time. We battle with our flesh. But the justified are no longer slaves to sin. No longer are they under sin's lordship, but now they are under a different lord, a better master. They're under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And they have a bent, at least a bent towards holiness, right? We now walk in newness of life. And again, this entire argument, this false understanding of sanctification that promotes these two kinds of Christians, one carnal and the other so-called spiritual, has sadly led to another modern error in evangelicalism, and you're familiar with this one, I'm sure, called the no lordship view of salvation. And basically, the no lordship view of salvation says that a man can come to Christ as savior simply by saying that he believes. And if he says he believes, he's saved. Period. End of discussion. And we, if we are to question that confession of belief, if we're to confess uh, uh, to uh, uh, question that person's confession of belief based on that person's lifestyle of continuing in sin, if we say that that individual has to act like they're saved, that there has to be some kind of life change, some kind of evidence of Christ's life in them, that they can no longer continue in sin, that they can no longer still live in sin, that they have to obey Christ, that they have to, uh, 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 that Christ has to be master over them, that they're not to free to live their life any way that they choose, that there must be in their life of walking, of newness of life, then we who would come and question that, we who believe that the gospel actually calls... To faith, or the gospel called to faith, presupposes that a sinner must repent of their sin and yield to Christ's authority. If we were to come and challenge that person, uh, then we are accused by the no lordship people, the no lordship advocates, of adding to the gospel and demanding something more from him than the Bible does. Therefore, they would say we're teaching another gospel. In fact, we're teaching heresy, because this one who has confessed with his mouth Christ as savior. This carnal Christian may one day, at some point in the future, have a time of Christ's dedication and make Christ Lord of his life and then sometime in the future walk in obedience. What was a word I used this morning? I said trash. I won't, I won't go there. I won't say that word. I won't use the word scuba on. I won't use anything else other than to say the Bible knows no such thing of that kind of teaching. It's aberrant. It's unorthodox in doctrine. Because the Bible never separates justification from sanctification. It is a tremendously dangerous misunderstanding, unfortunate misunderstanding of the Scripture. The great Welsh preacher D. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said this, and he said this rightly. He said, You cannot receive Christ as our justification only, and then later decide to refuse or accept him as your sanctification. He is one and indivisible, And if you receive him at all, at once he is made unto you wisdom and righteousness, sanctification and redemption. He's actually quoting out of 1 Corinthians. You cannot receive him as your Savior only and later decide to accept or refuse him as your Lord. For the Savior is the Lord by whom his death has bought us and therefore owns us. Sanctification is nowhere taught or offered in the New Testament as some additional experience possible to the believer. It is represented rather as something which is already within the believer, something which he must realize more and more, and which must grow, in which must grow increasingly. And this is a tremendous truth. They go together, they're not separate. Christ changes people's lives. Now I thought to myself, should I go this route? You know, I'm always long, so you guys are used to it. But, uh, and, and something I was just thinking this afternoon in my, in my, my study. Uh, Lloyd Jones, when he first started preaching, he went to Wales. And he was in a church there for about 10 years. And as the story goes, in this little mining town that was just full of people who were not saved, because in that system, again, that system sounds like an oxymoron, but it comes from a Calvinistic Methodist system is what they sat under. And again, people at that time were not hearing about uh, 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 sin and and transformation of life. And God saved Lloyd-Jones, and and he started teaching just the Bible. He didn't know any better. And as he started teaching the Bible, people got saved in this little mining town. And this little mining town was full of miners who were alcoholics. And as as Lloyd-Jones kept preaching the gospel over and over again, more and more and more people got saved. All the alcoholics got sober. And as the story goes, they would bring to him their bottles of whatever they were, you know, whatever they were drinking, whiskey or whatever it was. And he would take those bottles and take them down to the basement Of the church. And the story goes, the basement of the church was full of half empty, um, bottles of alcohol. And they were kind of just like a picture, a visual reminder. And the church continued to grow. I mean, people's lives were transformed because they understood conviction of sin, justification by faith alone, and Christ as the only Savior. Romans chapter 6 teaches there's more to being a Christian than just saying I accepted Jesus. Romans 6 teaches that at conversion, one is united with Christ, and now that person is no longer who he or she used to be. Verse 5, if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him. Why? In order that our body of sin might be done away with. Why? So that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Verse 7, for he who has died is freed from sin. The great theologian Charles Hodge says this: For a professing Christian to live in sin is not only to give the positive evidence that he is not a real Christian, but is also to misrepresent the gospel of grace of God and to dishonor of, uh, to the dishonor of the religion and the injury of the souls of men. He's arguing that Jesus Christ actually changes people's lives. Right? You can't walk in. You can't stay in sin. Verse eight: If we have died with Christ, we believe that we should also live with Him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over Him. Now again, because Christ is our substitute, when Christ died as our substitute, we died with him. We died to the realm, the power, and the dominion of sin. We are dead to sin. And the fact that Christ lives and he's never to die again, that means that we who are united with him, we have tremendous hope. Hope that if Christ lives, we as justified, the justified ones, we shall live with him. If Christ lives, he makes certain that his people who are united with him will live holy lives here in time now, not just in glory, right? Eternal life starts the moment you believe. Eternal life starts the moment that you make your confession of faith in Christ, repent of your sin, and, and the process begins. Verse 10, for the death that he died, he died his sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Now, Christ's death was designed to destroy sin, right? Christ's death was designed to destroy sin, to make atonement for, and thus to put sin away. And Christ died; he died once, right? The death he died, he died once, once and for uh, once forever, never again to be repeated. His work is complete. So I told you last time that Christ died to the penalty of sin, bearing in his body all the sin of all who would ever believe upon him. And Christ died to the power of sin, forever breaking sin's power over those who belong to him by faith, right? Over those who belong to God by through faith uh, their faith in Him. Again, making him who knew no sin, right? God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become what? The righteousness of God, not in our own effort, the righteousness of God in him, right in Christ. Second Corinthians five twenty one. Now again, because of our union with Christ, it's a very important doctrine. Because of our union with Christ, what is true of him is true of us. We are now, because we're united with Christ, we're now dead to the penalty of sin. We're now dead to the power of sin once and for all and forever because of our union with Christ. That's why verse 11 says, Even so, consider. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. The only way that you can be certain that you're indeed saved, that you're indeed justified before God, united with Christ, is to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now listen, I'm not trying to be crazy, but listen... The New Testament knows of no practicing Christian drug addicts. The New Testament knows of no such category. People who profess faith in Jesus Christ as Savior, but they still live in sin. The, Christian, the New Testament knows of no practicing Christian murderers. Well, I used to murder Christians, but I don't do it as often, so I'm getting better. Christian, the New Testament doesn't have that kind of category. Christ, the New Testament doesn't have any category of Christian prostitutes. No Christian sinners, right, who profess Christ as Savior and still live in sin. I did not say perfect. The fact that there is life in you is evidenced by the fact that you fight your sin. Before you came to faith in Christ, you sinned and sinned and sinned never thought about it. The fact that Christ is in you, now you hate your sin. Again, the same sins you probably did before you got saved. But now you see them, now you hate them. That's evidence that Christ's life is in you. That's that push, that bent towards righteousness, that bent towards uh, 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 holiness. So again, the New Testament teaching on justification is the one who is justified is also sanctified. Again, sanctification and justification come at the same time to the believer at conversion. So that a believer is fundamentally different from the unbeliever the moment they believe. And I'll give you the definition of sanctification again. It's the continuous operation of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life, making us holy by conforming our character, affections, and behavior to the image of Christ. It's the continuous operation of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life, making us holy by conforming our character, affections, behavior to the image of God. We are not glorified till we reach glory. We're not perfect till we reach glory. But the bent... Of our delight. Right? You, you've been on the coast or someplace in the forest where the, the wind is always constantly blowing a tree. And that steady pressure of the wind takes that tree and bends it that direction. That steady force of the Holy Spirit is bending us away from sin and who we used to be in Adam towards righteousness, towards Christ likeness. It's not, you know, it doesn't peg the needle in, in one fell swoop, but it is a process, right? Now justification, I'm going to say something here, justification is instantaneous. Again, it's the Supreme Court of the Universe making a declaration, not based on you, but based on what God has done through his Son. But so is sanctification, at least in this one sense. In the sense that justification starts the process instantaneously of sanctification. Because God is in the process of redeeming to himself, for himself, a holy people. Justification, instant declaration, sanctification, again, in one sense is instant in the sense that it begins the process of that gentle blow, right, moving us away from who we used to be to who we now are in Christ. So the believer is to consider themselves to be dead to sin, but alive in Christ Jesus. And again, the believer who actually does that, who considers themselves, the reality of who God says they are in Christ. They are going to continue to flee from sin, all sin, all unrighteousness. Because our union with Christ not only secures our salvation, our pardon, our union with Christ secures destruction of sin. And it exhorts us to live according to who we are. Who are we in Christ? We are free men. We are no longer slaves to sin. We are slaves to Christ. Sin is no longer Lord over our life, Christ is. We have a different ruler. Verse 12, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. Verse 13, and do not go on presenting the members of your body as instruments of sin, uh, uh, to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. Therefore, because of your union with Christ, he's saying, verse 12, take some practical steps. Realize who you are and start living like who you are. Live as freemen. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Why? Because sin no longer has dominion over you. Sin no longer has the right to rule. Sin no longer has power to control you. Therefore, you do not let sin reign in your mortal body, in this temporal dying body of flesh. Don't obey its lusts. Verse 13, And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. Right? Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin. Right, it's only our bodies that uh, sin can still reign in. It's only our bodies that sin can still operate in in the life of the believer. Sin can't reign in our souls or in our spirit, but only in the body, in the flesh. But Paul called it the uh, this body of death. We'll get to it in Romans seven. Why do I keep sinning? Why do I keep sinning? Why do I see I want to do something and I don't do it? There's a struggle. Okay, Romans seven uh, addresses that issue. We're not the Romans seven or Romans six, right? This is a declaration of truth. Now, the members of your body, remember I told you that, meant your physical, literal body. Again, body, what Paul says, this body of death. Those members that have the potential to handle sin, those members that have the, the potential to carry us towards sin, right, your feet, take sin uh, in, into our minds. So the members of our body might also include our mind, mental powers, thoughts, reasons, imagination, emotions, because all of these make up who we are in total, And we are commanded to not go on presenting the members of our bodies to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. And again, for the Christian, perhaps the mind is the greatest way that we sin as believers, right? because we entertain wrong thoughts. We entertain wrong thoughts into our mind, and that opens the gateway to the rest of our body to get involved in the party, so to speak. Right? For the Christian, they must not allow his mind, his will, to be negatively influenced, and then to yield his body up to literal physical sin. Right, Because all sin is first incubated in the mind. I've told you this a thousand times, right? When do you go fishing? Not Saturday morning. When do you go fishing? Friday night. When you're sitting in your easy chair watching TV, you're going, man, I should go fishing tomorrow. You start thinking about it. You start thinking, well, you know what? I need to get my, I need to see if the boat doesn't have a leak in it, and I need to see if I got tackle, and I need to get some bait, and I need to, right? You start doing all this preparation work before you actually enter into fishing, which you're going to do the next day. Same thing with sin. Sin is always incubated in the mind before it's carried out in the members of our body. He said, don't do that. Don't present the members of your body as instruments of unrighteousness. Don't allow your mind to go that direction. So those are the negatives. Now the positive. Verse 13. Instead of doing that, he says, but present yourselves to God as those who are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Why? Because of everything that God has done for you in Christ. Because of your change. Because you're no longer who you used to be. And now because you're no longer who you used to be in Adam, you can't obey Christ. He said, don't yield your members to unrighteousness, but rather present yourself to God. Allow God to use you. Be at God's disposal because of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for you and what the Lord Jesus Christ has done in you. And that's the command for the believer, for the true Christian. The unbeliever can't do that, right? The believer can. The believer, again, is alive, alive from the dead. The believer is no longer dead in trespasses and sins. He's dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ, raised from the dead. He walks in newness of life because he's united with Christ. Therefore, he says, present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Present yourself to God. He's saying all of you, right? All of your members, your hands, your feet, your eyes, your mind, your thoughts, your reason, your imagination, your emotion, everything that makes up who you are, you now present that to God, that person to God. The Lord is now the Lord of your life. Marvel thought, huh? The Lord is now your master. You now serve Him as a believer. You now live for his praise. You now live for his glory. You now live to serve his plans, his purposes. Present yourselves and your members as instruments of righteousness to God as those who are alive from the dead. Again, he's just making declaratory statements, saying this is the reality of who you are in Christ. One theologian says this, the God of all righteousness is fighting this foul enemy, the world, the flesh, and the devil, and sin and all its power. So what the apostle is saying is this, give all you have to this other side, enlist in the army of God, let all your powers be used as his weapons to destroy evil sin and unrighteousness and to bring the kingdom of light and glory and of truth. This is the apostle's exhortation. This is his commandment here, that far from doing anything in any way to encourage the success of that old power from which we have been delivered, we should do the exact opposite positively and actively, we should be engaged in this mighty crusade of righteousness, of truth, in which is God's crusade, right? Present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Now, that's tremendous truth, right? Tremendous truth, freeing truth. Again, live as freemen. Now, let me give you two deductions or two principles. They're not uniquely mine, but they've been gleaned from wise men, Uh, on this teaching, the New Testament teaching on holiness and sanctification. Here they are, number one. The most fatal thing that we can ever do with connection to sanctification is start with ourselves. The most fatal thing that we can ever do with connection with sanctification is to start with ourselves. I told you this all through the book of uh, Ephesians. We're all too subjective. We happen to think that the world starts with us, stops with us. All maps begin with us in the middle, Right? You look at a world map and what do you see? You don't see the United States. You see you, right? Wherever you're sitting in the room. Right? We're all too subjective. We're always looking at us. We're always examining ourselves. We're always looking at us and all those things that discourage us and all those things that get us down. Right? Our chief reason that we are personally interested in holiness and sanctification is because we're all on a personal level in a terrible fight with sin. And we tend to get defeated rather easily. Therefore, we become even more subjective. What can I do about this problem of sin in my life? What can I do to get rid of it? What can I do to get relief? And according to principle number one, the most fatal thing you could ever do with connection to sanctification is to start with yourself. According to that principle, that introspection is a terrible mistake. So again, the greatest mistake regarding the holiness movement of the past is that's where they were. They were utterly subjective, all thinking about themselves. They convince themselves they reach some state of nirvana with regards to sin. And you know, I just declared to myself, even my thought sins don't matter because unless I do it intentionally, it doesn't really count as sin. I mean, they've got all convoluted because they're not thinking biblically. The worst thing we can do is be subjective. Martin Lloyd-Jones, again, speaking on the holiness movements of the past, those meetings, and then verses 12 and 13 here in particular. He says, come to the clinic. He says, I'm quoting actual words that are often used in their ad- advertisement. Or I guess if you're in the UK, you say advertisement, right? These are the actual words on there, advertisement, right? Come to the clinic. What you need, we're told, is a spiritual hospital. And here your sickness and your illness can be dealt with. Lloyd-Jones says, but as I read these verses, I see no suggestion whatsoever of a clinic. Rather, I find a barracks, not a hospital, but a military center. What do I need? What do I find? I do not find a doctor here, but I find a sergeant major. Here we are, as it were, slouching about the parade ground, feeling our own pulses, feeling miserable, talking about our weaknesses. So we say, I need a doctor. I need to go to the clinic. I need to see the medical officer. But that's not right, says Lloyd-Jones. What you need to listen to is the voice of the sergeant major who is there shouting out the commands of God to you. Let not sin reign in your mortal body. Yield not your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. Yield yourself unto God. Lloyd Jones again, you have no business to be slouching about like that. Stand on your feet, realize that who you are and what you are, (coughs) enlisted in the army of God. Present yourself. This is not a clinic. The main trouble with the Christian church today is that she is too much like a clinic, too much like a hospital. That's why the great world is going to hell outside. That's a pretty powerful statement. We're not at the hospital. You're in the army. So again, the teaching says we need to forget ourselves. We need to forget our temporary problems and we need to look to God. Because again, we need to realize who we are. We need to get in the army of God and we need to fight against the kingdom of evil. In doing so, we need to present ourselves to the king of righteousness. Present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, your members as instruments of righteousness to him. So stop being so subjective. Point number two is the principle of service. The principal service. Again, it's not about us. It's not about our failures. It's not about our feelings. It's not about our successes. It's about God. Look what the text says. It's amazing to me if we just stop and look what the text says. We could clear up so many issues. Present yourself to God as those alive from the dead. And your members as instruments of righteousness to God. So in this whole issue, you're not the issue God is. I'm not the issue God is. Our service to God, that's the issue. Right? For when we let the members of our mortal bodies be used as instruments of unrighteousness, we have failed to carry out in our members the reason why Christ died for us. Why did Christ die for us? Again, verse 5. If we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Christ died for us in order that our body of sin might be put away, done away with. And every time you and I let sin reign in our mortal body, every time we allow uh, we allow ourselves to obey its lust, every time, verse 13, we go on and present the members of our body as to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, we are allowing sin to use us instead of us being used for the one who died for us and saved our soul. Every time we allow sin to use us, we, we are, every time we sin, we're allowing sin to use us instead of us being used for him who died for us in service to God himself, right? Sanctification is for God. He's redeemed us so that we might be useful to him. So the whole issue has nothing to do with you, has nothing to do with me, has everything to do with God, and the whole issue has to do with God's glory, Right, the glory of God's estate, stake, the honor of Christ demands that you and I practically live out who we are positionally. Again, we've all been bought with a price; we're not our own. Therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal body as to be its lust. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and the members, uh, your members, as instruments of righteousness to God. I mean, again, the, the command is to serve Him, serve Him alone, give yourself up to Him alone. Charles Hodge again the great theologian present yourself once for all as those who are once dead but now are alive having been quickened by the power of God raised from the debt raised from the death of sin and all its dreadful consequences you are bound to live unto God who having been restored to life or who having been restored to life would ever desire to return to the grave that's a tremendous statement right since God has set you free since God has taught you brought you from death to life who having been restored to life would ever desire to return to the grave. It's like I told you last time. The old man's dead, leave him in the ground. Don't go digging him up every week. Because every time you dig him up, he looks it looks worse than he did the last time you saw him, right? Because the corruption just keeps building. Verse 14, which is a tremendous verse. Verse 14 for sin shall not be master over you, for you're not under law but under grace. Sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law but under grace. Now this is the final argument against the final refutation of the charge brought against the apostle Paul back in the verse one, right? What shall we say? Then we're to continue to sin that grace may increase, right? Now listen, verse fourteen is not a command. Verse fourteen is a word of encouragement. Verse fourteen is not a command. Verse fourteen is a word of encouragement. Verse fourteen is the reason to carry out the commands of thirteen and fourteen, or twelve and thirteen. Verse 14 is the reason for carrying out the commands of verses 12 and 13. Now notice in verse 14, there are two statements that are introduced by the word for, F-O-R. For sin shall not be master over you. For you are not under law but under grace. The first statement answers the question as why. Why should we have nothing to do with sin? Why must we not allow uh, sin to reign in our mortal bodies? Here's the reason. For sin shall not be master over you. Sin is not going to have dominion over you if you're a justified one. Again, it's a positive statement. It's a positive statement saying what is true now and what is going to be true of us in the future. Sin shall not be master over you. Again, the statement is saying that sin shall not master you. You're not going to yield yourself to sin. You're going to yield yourself to God. Sin shall not be your master. Now, the struggle with sin, therefore, that we have now in time... He's saying is ultimately one that we're going to win. Right? Ultimately, one they're going to win. Sin shall not be master over you. Just stop and think about that. I mean, again, there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. That ought to get a stand of applause. There's no uh, sin shall not be master over you. Ought to be a word of encouragement for everybody in the room who's struggling with sin. I'm fighting the fight, but look, I've got this encouragement that sin shall not be master over me. God is not going to allow sin to have dominion over our life. Why? Because the power of sin has been broken and the triumph of holiness effectually secured by the work of Christ, so says Charles Hodge. power of sin has been broken, the triumph of holiness effectually secured by the person of Christ. Stop thinking about yourselves. Start thinking about God. Start thinking about uh, what God has done for you. And again, you see, the ultimate reason, the ultimate purpose for salvation... What is the ultimate object of God in heaven leaving? Christ coming, leaving glory, dying in our place on Calvary's cross, raising from the dead. Never to die again. What was the ultimate purpose for him to come? The scripture says his ultimate purpose that he would come and destroy the works of the devil. That's why he came, 1 John 3 and 8. The son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. And Christ's ultimate object and motivation is finally to, listen, finally to deliver his people from their sin. To destroy sin utterly. Ephesians 5.27 Christ gave himself up that he might present to himself the church in all her glory having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing but that she should be holy and blameless. Christ's ultimate object, his motivation is to deliver up for himself a holy people. Ephesians one four, He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy holy and blameless before him. So again, sin will not be mastered over you. That's the plan of God from eternity past. That's the plan of God before the foundation of the world. God will not allow you as a justified one, one who's united with his son and union with his son, he will not allow sin to have dominion over you. So to call yourself a Christian and yet to walk in sin, to call Jesus my Savior but not my Lord is a monstrous suggestion. It is a complete wrong understanding of biblical sanctification and again this two-tiered christianity of a carnal and a spiritual christian i don't know what word i want to use here it's either a shame or a sham or both it's just not true god sent his son the most precious person in the universe into the world to die on calvary's cross and he raised him from the dead and some people want us to believe it's okay for a christian to continue in sin so that grace may increase It's okay at the sacrifice of Christ to continue to let sin reign in your mortal body until you have some kind of second blessing or some kind of quote-unquote crisis moment of dedication. The the, the very idea is is unbiblical, preposterous, a lie. It's just not true. You have been set free, live like free men. Sin shall not be mastered over you. Now the second phrase, for sin shall not be mastered over you, the second phrase, for you are not under the law but under grace. That's the ground for your confidence, the grace that sin will not have dominion over you because you're no longer under the law but under grace. Now here, law should be taken in the widest sense, not just the Mosaic law, but it's the rule of duty that binds the conscience as an expression of the will of God. So there are only two, persons, only two places you can be, either under the law or under grace. And no man is free from sin, so men are bound naturally under the law. That means if you're bound under the law, that means you've got to find a way to justify yourself in the presence of God. By your own actions, your own works, your own deeds. And someone wrote this, every man under the law rests on his personal conformity to the law as the ground of his acceptance before God, and every man under the law must therefore be condemned. Right? So under the law you're condemned. Under the law is the exact opposite of being justified by faith alone. Romans 3 and 20 because of the works of the law no flesh will be justified and decided through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Right? The law can never deliver us from the bondage to sin. The law was never intended to do that. All the law can do is aggravate sin, expose sin. All the law can do is stir up more sin. Romans 5.20, the law came in so that transgression may increase. Again, I've told you the analogy. You see the sign that says, don't step on the grass. You say, who in the world are you? I don't even care who you are. Put that sign up. I'm stepping on the grass. The sign says, don't touch wet paint. You say, I want to see. That's what the law does. The law comes so that transgression would increase. It exposes sin. The law encourages the natural man's sinful passions. It stirs him up to sin even more. So if you are under the law, all that is going to do is produce in you a state of utter hopelessness, helplessness, depression, which is going to make you even more susceptible to sin, to its power, to its lust, to its deception. If you're under the law, your sin is laid bare, it's exposed before the holiness of God. The the law of God exposes and pinpoints your sin, and all you see is your sin, and you know that God is holy, and you're not, and you're in a whole lot of trouble. And in the perversion of our fallen minds, instead of running towards the mercy of God, to seek God's help, God's help, or God's uh forgiveness, the man under the law runs the opposite direction as far and fast as they can away from God. We flee from God's presence. Go back to the book of Genesis. You you, you see it all the time. We see it all the time in pastoral ministry. I know when people are struggling because they stop showing up. They think if they run, that maybe they can fix it on their own. They can't. So for the believer, for the justified, the declaration is sin shall not be master under, over you, for you're not under law, but under grace. So that's how Paul can say with absolute confidence that sin shall never be master over the believer, because the believer, the justified one, now is in a different realm, he's under grace. Under the realm, the rule, the authority, the blessings of now, God's favor. Placed into a position by God himself where we are forgiven, justified in God's sight, at peace with God. The hostility, the enmity is over for the believer. We have access into the very presence of God. We've been forever changed, reconciled, united with Christ, loved by God, saved from the wrath to come. Grace not only changes our eternal destiny, but grace actually changes our life and time. It's a tremendous truth. So again, top of the chapter, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin? The grace may increase, may never be. How shall we decide to sin to live in it? We can't, because now we're in the reign of grace. And everyone who renounces dependence upon himself, upon their own personal merit of strength, who accepts and believes the offer of justification by faith alone, again, the proponents were saying it's just going to cause people to sin more. And Paul says, you're crazy. It's going to cause them to sin less, because God has freed them. <clears throat> it's a free gift of grace. Not only are they assured for Christ's sake that they're freely forgiven, reconciled to God, but again, united with Christ, they are partakers now of his life, partakers of his holiness. Because of the believers' union with Christ, they now consider themselves dead to sin, alive to God in Christ Jesus. They now present the members of the body no longer to sin, no longer to unrighteousness, but to righteousness and to God himself. That's grace. Sin's no longer master over you. Right? You're not at a law. That's grace. The grace of God secures not only our justification, the grace of God secures our sanctification. The grace of God says sin will not be master over the believer because the steady work of the person of the Holy Spirit is going to drive us away from who we were in Adam and drive us towards Christ into more and more Christ-likeness. It's tremendous truth. Romans 6, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body, as to obey its lust, do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments from of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and the members, uh, your members, as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you; you're not under law, but under grace. It ought to be a round of applause for God, right? Hallelujah! Thank you, God, for what you've done for us in Christ, right? Our Father and our God. That's exactly our heart sentiment. We are just overwhelmed by this wonderful truth. <laughs> that is uh, a truth that must be lived out, realized in our life, and then carried out because of your power, the person of the Holy Spirit, who is always changing us and conforming us more and more to the image of your Son. We're thankful for the fact that we've been changed from one realm to another, from law to grace, from Adam and sin to Christ now in life and righteousness. What wonderful truth. Help us to remember these truths, to live according to these truths, and to present ourselves to you as those whom you have redeemed from the dead, instruments of righteousness for your glory. Thank you for just a great day of worship tonight and this morning. I just pray, Lord, you'd help us to continue to think deeply on all these truths. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen.